Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. In today's podcast, I will be discussing household food insecurity in Canada with Dr. Valerie Tarasuk of the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto. She and her colleagues have been doing cutting-edge research on food insecurity in Canada. Valerie, welcome to Fair Talk. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. In your research on food security in Canada, what, what, what is generally meant by the term food insecurity? And give us a, just a starting point idea of how prevalent it is. What we mean by that term is inadequate or insecure access to food because of financial constraints. So it's very, very specific to problems of affording enough food, you know, putting food on the table for yourself and your family, and the, prob- the root of the problem being financial constraint. We've been measuring this problem in Canada for years, but in 2005, we adopted the Household Food Security Survey Module that's been used for many, many more years in the United States to monitor food insecurity in that country. So the most recent national data we have is from 2012. And in that year, 12.6% of Canadian households reported some degree of food insecurity. And to translate that into perhaps a more common, um, common unit of measurement, that translates into something over 4 million Canadians living in a household that was affected in some way by food insecurity. And you mentioned that this survey has been conducted in the United States as well. Are we able to compare how Canada fares relative to the United States? Yes, and that's actually a really interesting thing to do. Because we're using an identical survey module, and in both countries, this problem is monitored on a population representative survey, Although we code the module differently in Canada and the United States, and we apply slightly different labels, but in our research program, we've applied the USDA's thresholds in order to categorize food insecurity so that we've got perfectly comparable numbers. And what we can see is that Canada is somewhere between two and three times lower in its rate of food insecurity than the United States. Oh, why is that? Do you have any thoughts? There was one study done when this common metric started being used in Canada. There was one study done actually by Mark Nord from um, Economic Research Services Division of USDA. And it's, it's very interesting. I mean, there probably needs to be more research in this area. But what he found was, I mean, part of it is that our populations are different. But another part of it is that amongst particular population subgroups, there appears to be higher rates. So I think probably, to put it in broad strokes, Overall, in the United States, I think there's a higher rate of poverty, and food insecurity aligns quite closely with poverty, so that's part of it. But there also were some subtle differences in terms of the relationship between food insecurity and whether a household had children or not, things like that. So it's an area where we need to do more to really figure out what's going on. But yeah, it's, it's, it looks like part of it is about the nature of the policies in this country and the nature of our, our economic circumstances. So the conversation we're going to have in general about the methods of figuring out food insecurity are, are comparable to the United States. How does this metric that you've been using compare to measures of undernourishment and hunger that's used by the FAO? Um, we're part of the Millennium Development Goals in terms of trying to reduce undernourishment in the developing world. Is this a different measure than that? Yes. 
Yes, it is, and it's 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 important to keep these things separate. We can't assume in a, in a in an affluent country like Canada, we can't assume that what we're looking at when we look at food insecurity is you know frank undernourishment or malnutrition. When we look at the relationship between food insecurity and dietary intakes or nutritional adequacy in Canada, we can see definitely differences where people who report struggles to put food on the table have less probability of you know having an adequate diet, but the differences are not anywhere near as stark as we would expect to see in other in other places. So yeah, it's important to keep those things separate. I mean, recently, I guess in April of this year, FAO produced a report that was an attempt to compare food insecurity rates across all kinds of countries using a simpler measure based in some ways on the 18 items that are used to monitor food insecurity in Canada and the United States, but much, much briefer, I think maybe eight or 10 questions. And um, they administered the questions through the kind of, well, it was, it was administered by the Gallup poll. So it was a telephone survey, I think, in most higher income countries and a, a sample of 1,000. So a, a crude, you know, quick and dirty kind of measurement. Sure. Um, but it's interesting there to, to see the differences. And it's exactly as you'd expect. Higher income countries tend to have lower rates than lower income countries do. And then again, interestingly, we can see the distinction between Canada and the U.S. with Canada coming in at a lower rate, but you know some European countries coming even lower. I mean, it's it's interesting. So it's the only example I know of where there's been an attempt to take the idea and move it systematically across the globe. But yeah, going back to your original question, for sure we would want to distinguish between food insecurity as it's measured and and understood in North America and these notions of undernutrition. So when we sort of are looking at sort of the world's developing uh, populations, roughly the prevalence is, I think it's around 13% as well of uh, that population is um, undernourished. That wouldn't be comparable Not to, at all. To, this, to what we're going to talk about. So we, got, we can make comparisons to the United States, but the FAO measures were um, – we're talking about something different. And what – are we talking about the, the, the key difference being that one is more of a subjective measure um, and the other is in, uh, an attempt to kind of assess whether someone has enough calories um, to live an active and healthy life? What would be the best way of making the distinction between what we're doing in North America and um, in the developing world? I think that, yes, I mean it – they're, in some ways, they're apples and oranges, right? Mm. One absolutely is a subjective measure. It's 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 a reflection on a household circumstance over a 12-month period. There is, within the survey module, there's an ability to, to strip out levels of deprivation. So if someone um, were to answer affirmatively to all 18 of the questions on this module, I mean, at the end of the day, they would be telling us they had gone whole days without eating. If we had very many people with such extreme levels of deprivation we would expect to start to see associations between such extreme deprivation and um, the protein and calorie you know, malnutrition or undernutrition. But thankfully in our country, we don't see that many people at that level of extreme deprivation. So part of what's happening with, I think, with um, measures of, of undernutrition um, is they're trapping a state that is an extreme level of deprivation that endures over a significant period of time. And that's not what we're getting here. We're, we're looking at a, a, a subjective assessment of a household circumstance over a 12-month window where very few members of our population are so extreme as to be reporting absolute food deprivation day after day after day. Or you mentioned this, and I think this is important. Let's, let's go through the, the, the nature of the survey and how it lends itself to 
gradations of food insecurity. So when we've been talking so far about food insecurity, we've been lumping, and correct me if I'm wrong, three groups, uh, three measures, I guess, that build on each other, marginal, moderate, and severe. So maybe one way to do it is to just talk about what it would mean if someone was um, marginally food insecure, and that's about 4% of the 13% that we're talking about. So those are households where people only affirmed one item on the 18. And typically in this list of questions, I mean, the questions vary in severity from the most mild level being, do you ever worry about running out of food or have you in the last year ever worried about running out of food and not having money to buy more? On through to questions about um, compromises in the quality of food intake and then compromises in quantity. So someone who's, or a household that's classified as marginally food insecure would have said yes to probably only one question, and that question typically would have been that question about worrying. So they're expressing some concern about their ability to make ends meet, but, um, but they're not saying that they have systematically compromised the quality of their dietary intakes or those of their children because of a lack of food or money for food, or, and they're not telling us that they've you know, skipped meals or gone without eating. So they, they've, they've said enough to indicate that they are different from other Canadians and that they are worried about not being able to manage, or they have been worried in a serious way about not being able to manage. And, and that's a, a very significant distinction, but it's not at the level of them telling us that they've actually not been able to eat. And then it was we moved to, say, moderate, they would be somebody who was both marginal but had answered a different type of question. Is, it, is that right? When we classify people as moderately food insecure or household, I keep saying people, but this the unit of measurement for this That's module good. is household. But when we classify um, households as moderately food insecure, we're looking at, at households where the respondent has affirmed enough items for us to have reason to believe that, that there was some uh, compromise in the quality of the dietary intakes of adults and or children in that household. And so they've said, I mean, the more things that people say yes to on this on these 18 questions, the worse their household situation is. So the moderate classification, people would have re- responded affirmatively to two, three, four, five questions across the adult and child scales that would have given us reason to believe that at minimum there were compromises in the quality of the intakes at some point in the year because of financial constraints. And then finally, I guess the, the severe category is evidence that someone actually forgave or, you know, gave up food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The severe category is a very, very worrisome situation because those are people who have said yes to many of the questions on this module. And the way the questions are um, organized, there are several questions that are capturing quantitative compromises. So to give you an example, you know, people are asked, have you or other adults in your household ever skipped meals or cut the size of meals because you didn't have food or money for food? Have you ever gone hungry without eating? Have you ever lost weight in the past year because of a lack of food and money for food? And then at its most extreme, have you gone whole days without eating? And each time someone says yes to those questions, they're asked how often. And so not in a very detailed way on these modules, but, you know, is it almost every month or some months or like, was it, was it, was it, was it a fairly rare event or was it a, was it a, was it a, a, a problem that was, um, was pervasive throughout the year? And 
Similar questions are asked of um, the children in the household, although it's an adult who responds to those questions. But again, asking, you know, has, has, have children in the household ever not eaten um, or gone hungry without eating because of a lack of food or money for food? So by the time people are saying yes to those questions, they're in very, very seriously compromised circumstances. And that severe category is about 2.6% of the population, of the households, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's It's been sitting fairly stably at that at that level for a few years, and we have to hope it doesn't ever get any bigger. Now, I should say for the um, people listening to this podcast, um, Valerie and her co-authors, and you mentioned this um, earlier, I think, have been working on reports on this issue for some time, and we'll make a link uh, to the reports that we're talking about and, and pulling data from. So... Um, so you can sit back and just enjoy, and uh, we'll make a link so that you can get to, to the numbers. So if we can just kind of review, it's 4.1 about in the marginal category. Then if you can marginal and moderate together are about 10%, and then you add another 2% in severe, and you get this close to 13% um, figure that we've been using. Is, is that about right? That's right. So over time, what have you, in addition to kind of documenting the prevalence, what issues and um, characteristics are you finding are associated with food insecure households? Well, we've done a lot of work to try to figure out who's got the problem and why they've got it. And so um, at a very kind of gross level, we can say that food insecurity is more prevalent amongst households with low incomes. The lower the income, the greater probability of food insecurity. But it's not a one-to-one relationship. So we can find households with fairly low incomes, but still reporting food security. And we can find households with what would seem like middle or higher incomes, but reporting food in- insecurity. So that has caused us to take a lot longer look at what's going on. So income is part of the story, a big part of the story. It's actually the single strongest predictor, household income. But on top of that, what we realized is that home ownership is very, very significantly associated with this problem. So on the Canadian Community Health Survey, where this food insecurity is monitored, there's a very simple question about, you know, do you own or rent the dwelling in which you live? And people who report that they are renting have a probability of food insecurity that is several times higher than those who are owning. And when we do multivariate analysis, where we've got income and home ownership in the models, even after we take into account income, homeowners are at systematically lower risk. Um, and that associates with the fact that to be a homeowner is to be somebody with more wealth. And even if you have a mortgage, you've got equity. So um, you're able to buffer changes in the household circumstances in a way that someone who's a renter isn't. So um, so homeownership is, is another layer of, of um, evidence of vulnerability or, uh, or protection. Another thing that has uh, turned out to be very interesting for us is in addition to income and whether or not you're owning the home that you, in which you live, um, there are some very basic questions about the sources of household income. And what we found is that households in which the main source of income is social assistance have an extremely high rate of food insecurity. Uh, I think nationally, about two out of three households reliant on social assistance programs are food insecure. So that's at one end of the continuum. At the other end of the continuum, we find people reliant on pensions or um, seniors' incomes. And those people are at very low risk, much lower 
than the um, incomes of people who are in the workforce, which is what are, what are your thoughts on that? Why? Well, part of our, our I mean, part of our research program has been to really look very closely at those two ends of the spectrum. And um, to speak first to the uh, seniors, what's what we've got going on in Canada with seniors is that at the point that somebody turns 65, they, without doing anything else except having that birthday, are eligible for what is effectively a guaranteed annual income. Um, at the point that someone turns 65, they will be eligible for old age security and a guaranteed income supplement. They'll also have full drug coverage, and they will enjoy discounts at many um, in many retail outlets. If they live in a city like me in Toronto, they'll have a discount on public transit. There's many, many ways in which both the pri private and public sector um, support seniors. And that's a beautiful thing, right? I mean, it's a, there's a whole string of initiatives that have emerged from a determination to reduce or to try to eliminate, in fact, poverty among seniors. And we're not there yet. But um, when we look at the effect of the guaranteed annual incomes of seniors in Canada, we can see that for someone who is a low-income adult, um, at the point that they turn 65, um, so a low-income unattached adult, at the point that they turn 65, their risk of food insecurity will drop in half. Um, so it's a, it's a tremendous statement on the power of a social protection program like our seniors' pensions. Contrast that to the story of people on social assistance, so the other extreme end of the continuum, where um, maybe two-thirds, and in some provinces it would be in excess of 80% of people receiving social assistance are um, food insecure. And I should just make the clarification for people that are unfamiliar with these programs, that in Canada, um, old age pensions are managed at a federal level. So that is a federal thing, although there are provincial programs layered onto it. But social assistance programs are, fall, um, are programs that fall under provincial or territorial jurisdiction. So we can see significant variation between provinces and territories in terms of vulnerability related to social assistance. But with the sole exception of Newfoundland and Labrador, everywhere else that we look in the country, more than half of those receiving social assistance benefits are food insecure. And many of them, and this is a, a very worrisome finding, many of them are severely food insecure. So this is, it's a serious level of deprivation. Um, when, sorry, you mentioned that you had, um, are able to look at comparisons uh, a, a, across Canada the, at the provincial level. Have you been able to pick up any um, differences in provincial policies that um, have an effect? Yes, yes. Um, the, uh, the most um, marked one was a study that a doc, former doctoral student of mine, Rachel Loopster, did looking at Newfoundland and Labrador. And what we what triggered it when we started producing these annual reports on statistics on food insecurity, we started graphing provincial and territorial prevalence estimates, and we realized that Newfoundland and Labrador's rate of food insecurity had dropped markedly between 2007 and 2011, and that prompted us to do a whole lot more work. So what Rachel Lutzdor was actually eventually able to figure out is that in 2006, that province introduced a very, very radical poverty reduction strategy. And it was a strategy, it, I mean, it wasn't designed with any explicit goal to reduce food insecurity, not at all. But it, the goal was to reduce both the breadth and the depth of poverty in the province. And so a part of the strategy was to um, improve the circumstances of people on social assistance there. So they did all kinds of things. They raised the benefit levels. They indexed them to inflation, which is practically unheard of in this country. Um, they 
did other things to reduce the liquid asset exemption and the, um, sorry, to increase the liquid asset exemption and the earnings exemptions and other things so that basically over a period of five years as that um, policy rolled out, what we saw is the material circumstances of people on social assistance in Newfoundland and Labrador improving markedly. What happened to food insecurity over that period? The rates dropped in half. So um, when we look at um, the 2012 data, which is the most recent data we have for Newfoundland and Labrador, whereas when we look at other provinces, we can see people who report their main source of income on, as social assistance having rates of food insecurity of 70, 80, 65, whatever percent. In Newfoundland, we're sitting somewhere down around 40. So it, it, it shows that this, this problem is very, very sensitive to income-based interventions. Right. And is there, does it suggest also that addressing food insecurity is, a, is similar, if not exactly the same, as addressing poverty? Are there distinctions that we should think about um, between the two? So would a, po a poverty reduction policy be essentially similar to a uh, policy to address uh, food insecurity, or are there important distinctions between those two approaches? Thank you. That is an excellent question. Um, the, I think there are distinctions, and it's partly about how poverty reduction strategies get play, you know, play out in this country. Often when a government, federal or provincial, announces a strategy to reduce poverty, they start by defining poverty by some income threshold, and then they introduce some measure to reduce the proportion of people or children or seniors, whatever their target is, to reduce the number that are below this, this, this income threshold. And depending on where that income threshold is set, um, I mean, if you can imagine, we can draw a line somewhere, and wherever we draw the line, really, we, there'll be people cl very close to that line, and they only maybe need $5 to get over the line. And so sometimes we've seen poverty reduction strategies that have very much focused on people close to whatever the line is. And in Canada, we don't actually have a, a, you know, a firm policy-centered definition of poverty. So it's not uncommon for provincial governments to start a poverty reduction strategy by defining poverty for themselves, for example, or you know, mm -hmm. going out on a road trip to say, what do people mean by poverty? And so there's a lot of different ways in which that threshold would get set. And then there'd be measures to move people over it. But because these often are um, policy interventions that are announced and play out in the context of you know, political elections and things, um, the thresholds can be quite high and the interventions can be quite small um, and very much focused on the people at the threshold. So the reason the Newfoundland and Labrador strategy had such a profound effect on food insecurity amongst social assistance recipients is because they weren't just focused on some arbitrary threshold. They were genuinely into um, tackling the depth of poverty as well. Contrast that, for example, to the poverty reduction strategy that rolled out in Ontario. They were focused on reducing the number of children living in poverty in Ontario, but they, they didn't make any meaningful changes at all to the lives of people on social assistance. I mean, the, the center point of their intervention was a child benefit that wasn't even distributed for many years to social assistance recipients. And when it was, it was restructured out of their benefits. So they, they experienced little, or if any, material gain. And people without children on social assistance received nothing. So, you know, when we look at the um, experience of food insecurity among social assistance recipients in Ontario, and they're, you know, a significant um, proportion of the food insecure, um, they don't move. So 
A poverty reduction strategy that tackles food insecurity has to get to the very depth of poverty, where food insecurity is most extreme, where the probability of severe food insecurity is greatest. But it, it, we cannot, I mean, what I like about food insecurity and thinking about it as a, as a policy outcome is I feel like it's kind of taking the clothes off these poverty reduction strategies and saying, you know, if, you, if you're going to introduce a poverty reduction strategy and it's going to be effective, it should reduce the number of households who are struggling to get the food they need or struggling to afford, you know, food. And if it doesn't do that, then there's been some monkey business go on and you really haven't, you know, you really haven't tackled people who are poor. You might have played around with the proportion below some arbitrary income threshold that you've set for yourself. But I think, I think you know, it would be easy to garner widespread consensus in this country that we would not want children, for example, living in households where parents were struggling to um, feed them. And a poverty reduction strategy that doesn't change that number isn't, isn't doing its job. But, you know, I, I, I feel, I mean, I, I, I need to, I know, I know, Brady, we have to talk about something else on this podcast. No, we can talk, keep going. <laughs> but, but. But I, I, it, for me, it's been it's been a real learning to be able to start to look at food insecurity rates provincially, in relation to provincial actions around poverty. And we have this extraordinary success story of Newfoundland and Labrador. But and and there certainly are more provincial strategies that we need to examine in detail. But we have nothing else on the surface that looks like it's anywhere it has been anywhere near that effective in reducing food insecurity. I want to follow up on that, but I also want to raise an issue that I wanted to be sure and get in. I'd like to ask you about um, – we talked about social assistance, but I know that you have brought up in, in other discussions um, – I've, I've watched you uh, give presentations. Um, you, you emphasize that it's important to recognize that the majority of the food insecure are actually uh, working for wages, um, and uh, that's – one thing I wouldn't mind you talking about, but then I don't want to lose the issue that we're on. And have you seen other provinces um, learning lessons from um, the, the, what's going on in Newfoundland, or is there anything? Is there any learning going on there that you've observed? So I guess maybe address that first point, uh, and then kind of let's come back to this discussion that we're having about um, policies to address the problem of food insecurity. Okay. Yeah, it, it is very interesting to look at the breakdown of food insecure households in Canada by main source of income. And what we can see is that almost two-thirds, I think it's about 62% of households that are food insecure, report their main source of income being employment. And while, as I've been saying, um, people on social assistance are at much higher risk, still there are fewer people on social assistance overall. And so even if two-thirds of them are, are food insecure, they end up comprising only, I think it's something like 16% of the total pool of food insecure households in the, in the country, as opposed to the 62% or whatever that are people reliant on incomes from employment. And that, that finding is, a, is an important one from a policy perspective as well, because it challenges us to think about what we need to do to intervene to enable people in the workforce to make ends meet. And there has been a more detailed examination of this relationship between work and food insecurity by one of our colleagues, Lynn McIntyre, who's at the University of Calgary. And what she figured out is that to be in the workforce and food insecure, it's it's more likely to be some uh, household where there maybe is only one person in the workforce and they're trying to feed multiple people with just one salary. 
it's also people working on part-time, short-term, you know, precarious work arrangements. So there could be more than one person in the household working, but but nobody with really um, secure, well-paying, long-term, you know, full-time employment. So, I mean, as other people in other um, in other uh, in other disciplines are talking about precarious work and the rise of precarious work and the concerns about that. And I think our findings related to food insecurity are another dimension of that concern, that to have so many people in the workforce who are still unable to um, reliably and confidently feed themselves and their families is, is a very serious problem. Have the other provinces been learning from each other in terms of adjusting with respect to the social assistance issues that you raised earlier? I know we're kind of jumping back and forth, but I wanted to make sure and come back to that. I think we're still in the early days. Um, you know, it hasn't been that many years that we've been measuring food insecurity in Canada, and the research that you and I are talking about that our group has done at least is very new. And so, you know, I think it's going to take time. I hope in time we will see more uptake. One thing that's interesting, though, I mean, the one province I can actually um, cite is Prince Edward Island, a very small province, but with a concerningly high rate of food insecurity and a very high rate among social assistance recipients. And Soon after we started talking about the rates across provinces and, and then talking about this amazing um, reduction in food insecurity in Newfoundland and Labrador, we found that, there, I mean, I think there's, it's a small place, Prince Edward Island, and I think there's a lot of really, there's a real vibrant community in terms of advocacy for things related to poverty elimination there. And before we knew it, um, our work was being talked about in the legislature there, and the province did make an increase in social assistance. Um, now, it's nowhere near as much as it needs to be, but I think it's it was it's encouraging, right? Because it did. I mean, it did show a province responding to concerns, you know, being voiced and then being substantiated with Statistics Canada data around problems of food insecurity among social assistance recipients. I don't think their increase is enough to to really change the circumstances hugely for people on social assistance, but it has to have made them better. One of the issues that often comes up in, in terms of solutions to this problem is, is food banks. What do we know about um, the relationship between food insecurity, use of food banks, food banks, um, use of food banks, and the, the support that are enabling people to move away from food insecurity? I know you've done some work in this area. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, food banks have always been the public face of food insecurity in Canada. And um, so, I mean, part of the reason that we started issuing the reports that we did, um, that we've been doing with these annual statistics on food insecurity, is to try to draw attention to this broader, broader body of information that's available in Canada about this problem. But when, when we look at the, the relationship between food bank usage and food insecurity, um, just at a very cursory level, the numbers of Canadians, I mentioned earlier, 4 million, over 4 million living in food insecure households. In a year, um, each year, Food Banks Canada, the National Association of Food Banks, reports a hunger count that includes an estimate of the number of people who were helped by food banks over the month of March of that year. And those numbers, when we contrast them to the national food insecurity data, those numbers are less than a quarter of um, the number of people um, reporting, you know, who would be living in food insecure households as, as assessed through this, this measurement. Um, when, but that's, you know, that's a contrast of an experience over a year with an experience over a month. Food Banks Canada says, well, you know, there are people who um, come only once a month or whatever. If we look over the year, their numbers are higher. But still, 
they're a far cry from the number of people who are food insecure. We have done a few other studies. I mean, there have been a few earlier um, population surveys in Canada that included both questions about food insecurity and food bank usage. And then, oh, maybe about 10 years ago, we started doing a very detailed examination of food insecurity amongst a sample of 500 low-income families in Toronto. So we have, we have some empirical work that has measured both food insecurity and food bank usage. And those studies all confirm the impression that you get from contrasting the big um, food insecurity numbers from the Canadian Community Health Survey with the hunger counts from Food Banks Canada. And that is that, you know, for every person who goes to a food bank or is helped by a food bank, there would be four or five others who are food insecure but not there. What's that about? Well, um, there are a whole lot of reasons like why people don't go to food banks. Some of them are relate to the structure of food banks. Some of them relate to the way in which people understand their own struggles. But um, importantly, excuse me, importantly, those that disconnect says we should absolutely not use food bank numbers as a proxy for you know rises or falls in the problem of food insecurity in our communities. The second layer, though, is those people who go to food banks, how are they doing? Because another way to look at the, this disconnect between the food bank numbers and the food insecurity numbers is to say, well, gee whiz, you know, those people who are food insecure should really be going to food banks because then they'd get some help, wouldn't they? Well, when we've looked more closely at people who use food banks, what we can say are two things. People who use food banks are absolutely food insecure. And if anything, they are more likely to be severely food insecure. So the research that we've done in Toronto absolutely says that um, food bank usage is a, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a last resort. People turn to public charities for assistance only when they can't figure out what else to do, and they're really struggling. So absolutely, those people are, are, are food insecure. But the other finding that we have from the work in Toronto, which is, is very worrisome, is that we can see no evidence that to use a food bank is to be rendered food secure. To go is to be is an indicative of, of a desperate circumstance. But after you go, you're very, very likely to still be food insecure. And why? Well, because what's happened when you've gone, you've received a bag of food or a couple of bags of food, and the amount of food you get will be limited because you know these are volunteer organizations and they're effectively rationing the donations they're able to receive. Um, so the amount of food will be limited. The frequency with which you can get food will also be limited. And the fact that you know your struggles for food emerge out of a larger financial struggle in the household that is, is, you know, we're talking about it through the lens of food today, but anybody who's food insecure is also very likely to be struggling to pay other bills. They very, very likely are behind in their rent. If they're, certainly if they're severely food insecure, it's quite, quite possible that they will be behind in their rent. They'll be struggling if they have prescription medications. They probably haven't filled those prescriptions because they can't afford to unless they happen to have a, a drug benefit program, which most won't. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on in these households besides the fact that somebody's struggling to put food on the table. And so food charity offers only a response to the food dimension, and it's a limited response. So, you know, it's important. I know this, is, this seems completely contrary to the idea that, well, gee, if people are hungry, you know, the solution should be, should be to give them food. But the food charity systems that we have institutionalized in Canada provide very limited assistance. And so while people, I'm sure, who use them are grateful for the assistance, it's, it's, it's not enough to take somebody from one of these terrible situations and turn them into food secure. 
Well, on that note, let's let's talk about if you if you had your way, um, what are the ideas that um, you would like to see brought forward? Um, I'd also be interested in what your you know your research around those ideas. In, in terms of addressing food insecurity, what kind of policies are you are really um, hopeful that would, I guess, both address the problem um, in the short term, but in the long term, reduce the prevalence of food insecurity in Canada? I think the most hopeful thing is the discussion that seems to be heating up around the idea of a basic income. And I mean, the 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 starting point for our interest in that came from the work that Lynn McIntyre and Herb Emily did, looking at the effect of seniors' pensions and saying, gee, that has a profound effect on vulnerability, and it is effectively an income floor. But the only people in Canada who enjoy that kind of an income floor are people who are 65 and up, because that's where we're intervening with a pension. So I think, and but recently in the April um budget in Ontario, there was an announcement of a pilot, a plan for a pilot study on a basic income. And, and we've heard um, talk about this in Quebec as well. And we've heard that, you know, the Liberal government is interested in this idea. So I think it will be very interesting to see how it plays out. The fact that as incomes fall at, to a very low place, the probability of food insecurity and severe food insecurity in particular rises so high. Um, to me, it says we need to intervene at that point and, and set a floor. The beauty of a floor over other kinds of policy interventions that we can imagine, like, for example, improvements to social assistance, the beauty of a basic income or an income floor is that it would reach not only people who are on social assistance, but also people who are struggling to get by but in the workforce and unable to earn enough money. So it would, it would help a lot of people. So I guess for me, that's, that's a promising direction. And sometimes in conversations, people say to me, yes, yes, but what else can we do? Because you know that's pie in the sky or something. And I think, well, we can talk about changes to, I don't know, the child tax benefit or um, some working income tax supplement or something else, or social assistance, for example. We could talk about changes to other benefits that might improve the circumstances of people who are struggling. But ultimately, all we're talking about is proxies for, you know, or, or, or approximations or, you know, what, poor cousins to this idea of, of an income floor. So for me, that's a really um, that's a really important direction going forward is to think about how do we how do we funnel income support to people at the very bottom end of the income spectrum, recognizing that those people live in a variety of circumstances. They are a variety of household configurations. How do we reach them? And we need to reach them with income because every piece of evidence we've got suggests that at that end of the spectrum, the most powerful intervention we can offer is a, is, is a financial one. Um, so that would be my my starting point. I just brought up. I, rem, I seem to recall that, like uh, in the United States, that uh, President Nixon brought up or proposed this idea at some point. Um, do we have any experience in Canada in in any of the provinces with uh, this? Guaranteed income. We are home to probably one of the most important experiments that's ever happened around uh, guaranteed annual income, and that was an experiment called MINCOM that happened in Manitoba back in the seventies. And so, it, it, I know I, I, I'm not a, not an expert in this at all, but it's a fascinating, fascinating experiment. So, Dauphin, Manitoba, and I believe some parts of Winnipeg, but Dauphin as a community 
um, had the experience of an income uh, of a guaranteed annual income for a period of time. And there's um, researchers from the University of Manitoba, and the lead one, I think, being Evelyn Forger, who's done a lot of analysis of what happened over that time. Now, unfortunately, the experiment, I think, did never realize its full potential because at some point the government changed and the investments that had been made in monitoring and analysis um, or record keeping around the experiment, I think, started to fall apart. But Evelyn Forger's work is amazing in showing the, the positive benefits, both from a health perspective, but also more broad social benefits. I mean, one of the ones that comes to mind, I just recently happened to be somewhere where I heard her speak, and one of the things that is just so so interesting is that people stayed in school longer. You know, um, rather than having to leave school and go to work, young people stayed in, in school longer. Um, you know, the people made decisions differently when they knew that they, they, you know, they didn't have a wolf at the door. Um, and there's a beautiful quote that she offers of, uh, from one of the participants from the MIMCOM experiment in Dawson. And it's an older woman now, and she talks about how, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough so that you could put cream in your coffee. And, and so, you know, I, I, we, we've got some evidence. One, also, um, Evelyn has looked at, at um, uh, I think, hospitalization, healthcare utilization in relationship to the Dauphin um, experiment. And it's as you would expect. I mean, there are indications that people's health improved. And that's really, really important with respect to food insecurity because it's such a profound marker of poor health and of eroding health. So, yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's a lot that says a guaranteed annual income would be an effective response to a good chunk of this problem, that, and the, the most extreme end of this problem. Um, that said, there are always, you know, there's the other side of that is people's concerns about, you know, will it form a, um, a disincentive to work, and, you know, what will, it ha what will it do more broadly? And I think, you know, there's people who have done research in those areas, and there are answers to those questions. And, you know, if, 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 if there are concerns, it's very easy to, easy to implement these programs in such a way that there's an additional incentive for, for um, broader labor force participation. But when I think back to the and but it, I think it's fair to say that the biggest criticism of the guaranteed annual income idea is this notion that it would um, be a disincentive to labor. Um, but if I think back to our findings related to the high, high prevalence of working households, you know, households in the workforce who are food insecure, these people already are working. They don't need an additional incentive, but it's not enough for them to be able to um, put food on the table for themselves and their families. So, you know, I don't think we have to worry about a lack of incentive to work. Most of our food insecure are already in the workforce. Have you thought, I should say to listeners, for the most part in this discussion when we've been talking about data, we've been talking data about data from a report that uh, Valerie and her co-authors wrote from 2012. But I should note in the 2014 uh, paper, um, Household Food Insecurity in Canada, on page 11, there's a really nice kind of graphic that traces out the relationship uh, between food insecurity by household income. And on that graph, at less than $10,000, I guess, an in annual income, it's you know, there's a 50% prevalence, but then it falls gradually, almost like a downward sloping line as you move higher. And that's a, a nice graphic in the context of the conversation we're having. And I was wondering, Valerie, have you thought, and you may not have gone into this much detail yet, but have you thought about what that guaranteed income in terms of magnitude would look like? Well, you know, we're, we're getting there. We've um, just started to 
to try to figure out how we could model the effect of an income-based intervention. And I think that's going to be a really important thing for us to do, right? To see just how far can we move this needle and where can we get the biggest bang for our buck. I'm delighted that you have drawn attention to that graph. It's my favorite thing. In our, it's, it's our new innovation in the 2014 report. And it's, I, I just think it's so interesting. When we break open the relationship between food insecurity and income by these three levels of food insecurity, marginal, moderate, and severe, what we can see is that the moderate and severe are the things that are much, much more sharply happening at that bottom end of the income spectrum. So one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how to, how to model um, the effect of, a, of, of a, an income floor and play around a little bit to see how can, what, what do we need to do to get that severe, in particular, the severe and moderate categories down? Um, because those are the ones that look like they're most sensitive to income, income interventions at that bottom end. And with, from a health perspective, there's no question they're the most important. So I think it, it's, it's something that I hope will come forward in the future. But it's, it's, it feels to me like it's one of the frontiers for us as researchers in this field now is to figure out what would it look like to intervene and what does that intervention need to look need, you know, what, what form does it need to take to maximize the impact without just, you know, unnecessarily squandering money. Valerie, you've raised an, a number of um, important issues that students uh, at the University of Guelph and at other universities are going to find very thought-provoking. But I wonder if you could step back and kind of as a way of, of ending this um, podcast and maybe speak directly to students about, you know, a lot of people are going to be inspired and want to address this issue. And at, what would you suggest? What kind of steps might they take? What experience have you had that have really made a difference in your ability to be able to be in the position you are and address these questions? <laughs> oh. Tough one at the end, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't start with this one. We would have had nothing but dead air. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I mean, the for me, the the movement in Canada to finally measure this problem is extremely important. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I can never get the quote right, right, but there's this saying that, you know, a problem doesn't exist until you measure it. And so I think the measurement aspects have been really, really important. And I think the longer I, as a researcher, have worked in this field, the more I've learned about kind of separating the concept of food insecurity or the, con the measurement construct from, you know, sort of broader notions of food that, you know, I mean, it, look at this podcast. Most of what you and I have talked about here is income and, you know, income support programs like social assistance. They're, you know, not, we haven't talked hardly at all about food and food-based interventions or food needs. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I guess, what would I say to people who find this interesting? I'd say, you know, figure out how you can do things in this area. And I don't mean charity. I mean, I, I think that for a very, very long time, the only opportunity any of us have had to participate if we are concerned about problems like hunger or food insecurity in our country has been through acts of, of um, food charity. And that's, that's fine. But, um, but to get beyond that into thinking about public policy, I just think it's really important for young people to become engaged in public issues and social issues and to start to think about them in a political, spec, you know, in a political um, framework and to start to sort of talk about them that way. I mean, there's a growing movement on campuses 
around food insecurity and student food insecurity. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's anywhere near a bit, as big a problem as the food insecurity experienced by people on social assistance, for example. But, you know, I think that um, as people become more aware of these problems, I think it's really, really important to, to get politicized and to start to see these things as they relate to public policy decisions. Because I feel like increasingly with our research, what we're seeing is that food insecurity is something that's preventable. You know, if we had a, a societal consensus that we didn't want to have anybody in these circumstances, we could do that. And we wouldn't be doing it by making donations anywhere. We'd be doing it by, by restructuring um, our policies in a way that protected people from this problem. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot here. And I guess I would just invite listeners to think bigger in terms of problems of, um, of hunger and food insecurity in Canada, to think bigger and to think about them more from a policy perspective. Dr. Valerie Teresak, thank you for sharing your ideas with us on Fair Talk today. Well, thank you very much for your interest in this topic. We much appreciate the opportunity to, to do a podcast with you, so thank you. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.